Today I'm talking with Katie Nelson, who is the Public Information Officer for the Mountain View Police Department in Northern California. She also has a prominent role with the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, as the chair of the PIO section. Katie, like me, is a civilian and we share the goal of telling the real stories of law enforcement. Katie discusses what her agency is doing to connect with community and then we look at issues on a national level for law enforcement, the changes they are making and the challenges they are facing. Here is a preview. The real magic of a lot of law enforcement agencies is they aren't just talking about being different, they are doing things differently. We have to move ever forward. The profession has always been good at that, and I think right now more so than ever. I've had the good fortune of meeting officers from across the country and around the world. I have yet to meet a single officer who said they joined it for the pay or for the power. They joined it because it called to them, quite literally. They saw something that they wanted to make better. There's been a lot of humanity lost in coverage of law enforcement. The headlines are dictating, for the most part, the mentality of what people assume to be true. There seems to be a lot of inference or assumption that if one, then all. There are myriad examples where that's just not the case. Opening your eyes up to the fact that the person in front of you is a person, and they happen to be a police officer. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really interested in talking with you for many reasons. One is your current role, and you came to the department as a civilian. You are a civilian. And like me, we're trying to tell the correct, accurate stories of law enforcement. Yes. And then I also know you're deeply involved in the IACP, and you're helping manage communications for law enforcement around the country. Your previous career was in journalism. Correct. If you want to tell me a little bit about what you used to do and then what drew you to your current role. I was a journalist from 2011 to almost 2016. I worked primarily in the Bay Area market with the San Jose Mercury News, the Oakland Tribune, and the Contra Costa Times. And I was, by happenstance, a crime and public safety reporter out in a small town called Lodi dealing with police, and I loved it. As I moved over into the Bay Area to work in that market, I was a breaking news and then a crime and public safety reporter. So my, my entire career was basically spent as a journalist spent covering law enforcement. I was very, very invested in building rapport and relationships with the police departments that I covered. They let me see all that the work, the good work that they do, all of the tough calls that they make. It helped ultimately for me to be able to get this job here. I work basically in that same capacity in terms of relationship building as a, as a PIO. Tell me what it was like then to go from being a reporter, following the stories you did, dealing with law enforcement, you would have a pretty good sense of what it means to be a police officer. But how did your view of law enforcement expand or change once you started actually working with the department? I think I thought I knew a lot. And then I got here and sure, I knew the penal code. It, you know, even as a journalist, I was not attuned to the way that I think I would like journalists to be attuned to now. That was a learning curve for me because it was understanding all that you represent when you go out in the community as a member of the Mountain View Police Department, all that is expected of you by the community, what has been built before and what needs to still be paved. 
And I, I don't think that's just us. I think that is happening in departments across the country. I mean, policing is not a monolith. There are 18,000 agencies that have very unique styles, very progressive ways of policing, very kind ways of engaging with the community. And really, there's been a lot of humanity lost in coverage of law enforcement. It's a whole different ballgame when you get to know not just the officer, you get to know the person, what they stand for, why they joined policing in the first place. I have yet to meet an officer, and I've had the good fortune of meeting officers from across the country and around the world. I have yet to meet a single officer who said they joined it for the pay or for the power. They joined it because it called to them, quite literally. They saw something that they wanted to make better. Some of them have now spent their entire, you know, more than half their lives doing that. Well, I agree. In my experience in interviewing police officers, they often say it was a calling and they chose it because they want to help people. I also appreciate hearing from you what law enforcement agencies are doing right. We don't often get that perspective. I was struck by what you said. I want to go back to it. A lot of the humanity is lost in the coverage today. Would you expand on that? I think it's partially we have seen the journalism industry shrink. There has been a lot of loss of resources and bodies, you know, not just money, but actual people to cover communities that they just don't have the capabilities to do that anymore. And so really what we see now is kind of this parachuting where people drop in, they cover a story, and then they leave. There seems to be a lot of inference or assumption that if one, then all. I think there are myriad examples where that's just not the case. In fact, we are seeing good being done every day in small measures and in big ones in policing. And those just, people don't have the time to cover those anymore. And that is just, you know, I think a detriment to communities. Well, that is, you know, an interesting perspective, especially since that was your job to cover law enforcement at the local level. I would say that big picture, the profession has been denigrated to a point where people just hate the police. And maybe not so much in smaller communities like yours. Some of the interviews I've done with smaller agencies across the country, they're not experiencing what they are in, say, Seattle, Portland, L.A., New York, some of the other major markets. But as a whole, do you see, especially since you're with IACP, this sort of negative view of law enforcement? I think on a national scale, yes. I think what is so hard is that there's so many people in the profession that want to fix this on a national scale, but we have to start small. We have to start thinking about what the path forward looks like specifically in our communities. And I think when we really drill down to it, it's not as necessarily tough in small and mid-sized communities as it is in cities like you mentioned, where there are there has just been this ongoing protests and civil unrest and the headlines are dictating for the most part the mentality of what people assume to be true. Really what we're trying to do at the IACP is begin to give communities a better look in totality of what is going on across the country with regards to how we we can build these partnerships. That's very much what the IACP is attempting to accomplish. Really it's making a concerted effort to get people to come to the table and to everybody, policing included, to listen. And what do you think policing needs to listen to? I think this understanding though that's the way that it's always been done doesn't necessarily work for everything anymore. And so having the ability to listen to new ideas that are not extreme, 
But even little things like the way in which we communicate certain instructions or directives, people have some great ideas around that. I think being able to sit and listen to those suggestions and have conversations, I, I call them possible wins and probable wins. What are And probable wins are the things that are fairly immediately implementable. And then the possible wins, so like the, the change in language of how we approach a, a question or a directive, or even things like changing the color of a polo shirt that we wear so that when school resource officers are on campus, students still recognize that they're law enforcement, but they're not necessarily all suited up in the way that they need to be, but they still have the tools available to them in the event that they need to respond to a safety threat. Possible wins are longer form things like behavioral services partnerships with mental health care, social workers, things like that, where you have a more holistic response in a community to a call that may not necessarily need to be straight law enforcement, but it takes really a village to be able to build that out and have it done well. I think a lot of times we're in a, we face a mentality now where people want immediate action and good things never come easy. And so being able to get people to invest the time and their effort and resources to help make the best possible solution for all, I think that's where law enforcement can listen and also provide some guidance in terms of the parameters in which they operate. Uh, just to finish the thought on the mental health professional, the co-responder model, it is something that department, some departments are already doing. Yes. Okay. Because even within my podcast, I interviewed an officer formerly with the Seattle Police Department in episode 13, who is part of their crisis intervention team. He did respond with the MHP, the mental health professional. So again, in some markets, they, they are able to do this. It also, it, it costs money and it takes training. It, yes. You know, it isn't... A simple thing. It, it's very much an investment, not just in a shift or a change in culture. It's also something where are there those resources in the community or at the county level? Where does the funding come from? It, it's not in in thought. It's an excellent idea, and it sounds easy, but really pulling all the pieces together takes time. Different models work for different communities. Things like the Cahoots model in Eugene, Oregon, or the partnership that Fort Collins Police Services has with their co-responder model. Having an embedded person within the department to be able to respond with a particular team. Truthfully, I, I think at the end of the day, there are going to be a lot of police that say, you're right, we, we are not trained social workers. And so finding the, what is best for a particular community is going to be, I think, at the forefront of how we kind of have these conversations in the future. I'd like to go back to what you said about changing how law enforcement officers phrase certain things. Tell me more about that. Tell me what you mean. Yes. So I, I, I think I brought up MVPDX. And tell me what MVPDX stands for. MVPD, so our department, and then X, like a TEDx talk. It's a community partnership program that we actually, uh, we built a year ago. Initially, it was very much to talk about and, and have a safe space for people to discuss what they were seeing in the news, particularly in the immediate aftermath of the death of George Floyd. And it has blossomed into something so much more. It has turned into a proactive partnership between community members and police. For us, community policing is very much community being in partnership with police. We invite a certain number of community members in for an eight-week period, and we have conversations about ways in which policing works and then ways in which can be improved. One of the things that we have been talking about is just language 
intentional language around how we approach situations. So when it comes to an officer responding to a scene, instead of saying something like, what's the problem? Saying, I am officer so-and-so, how can I help you today? Simple changes like that, that, that also requires a bit of a shift in mentality. You know, when you sit back and you think about it, it makes total sense. That's an easy pivot. You're calling police more often than not on your worst day when you have had a traumatic incident and you need help. The suggestion was made that it can already begin to de-escalate the tension of the moment. And so that's something that command staff that were present there, they sat back and they thought, how do we implement something like that into training? How do we get to our police officers to begin thinking like that as opposed to you know, the immediacy of their response and establishing that command presence, which is important, and still having that to a, to a degree, but coming at it with the language like that. Maybe that's, you know, that's something that we can pursue. Sort of the finer things. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds like a minute detail, but, you know, I guess first impressions are everything, right? And so being able to have an approach like that in, in certain situations could certainly, you know, be beneficial. Well, it sounds like a great program. And you've described it as a two-way conversation. I asked you what the police need to hear from the community. Let's look at the reverse. What do you feel the community needs to hear from their law enforcement? I think no matter how good of a job we think we do, we are still lacking in our ability to tell our story so that it is heard. And so really getting people in a room to meet you on a very personal level to remove the stigma of wearing the uniform that is very real right now in society and instead opening your eyes up to the fact that the person in front of you is a person and they happen to be a police officer. What's going through my mind is that seems like a a really ideal scenario. How many departments around the country can do that because of size, but also in some cases because of defunding? And you've got so many police who are leaving the profession. There are markets where response times have increased and the idea of having that high touch, let's get to know each other, remains important, but less likely can be done. You're right. It it is a bit of a utopia. And at the same time, the beauty about this program is that it can be scalable. This is something where we're staying after hours. It involves usually our command staff, so not people who are on the streets, but we do pull those folks in who want to participate to you know, give them those touch points. It's an investment in understanding that this is creating an opportunity for everyone for the future and for the immediate. Because now we're slowly but surely creating these community experts who have had these opportunities to engage with us and they're turning around and they're telling their respective audiences what they have learned. I think first communicating, coming together, getting to know each other is key. But also, as you say, you create ambassadors who then go into the community with accurate information to share with their friends and neighbors. They've had their questions answered they feel heard, and now they have information that goes beyond the headlines. This education piece continues forward and this ability to reach more people than we ever would on a patrol shift is kind of moving the needle a little bit. And that's really, I think, what the profession has been so good at for so long. And they're very cognizant now that history plus past experiences, lived experiences are acknowledged and 
in partnership, we have to move ever forward. The profession has always been good at that. And I think right now, more so than ever, they are very intentional about that. Some markets, the police are not invited to the table. In communities, city councils, uh, state legislatures are making new rules, new laws that affect the police, but the police have no say. In your role with the IACP gives you insight as to what's happening in other states. I try and keep up on most most legislation in, in as many states as I can. I, I think the biggest example is probably New York and Illinois that were really hit very hard with some legislation. What was the legislation? In New York, I believe every department is required to reimagine policing through, and I don't know what those partnerships look like. I think it probably varies by agency. In Illinois, a lot of police reform legislation was passed that has, it will make it hard for police to do the job to the best of their ability. I'd like to think that in all of this, there is you know, a concerted effort to be made to ensure that communities are kept safe. I think with regards to how laws have changed over time, the prolonged impacts well down the road aren't necessarily considered. Several decades ago now, California shut down state hospitals for mental health patients. To this day, there is still not a program in place to ensure continuity of care from start to finish for somebody who is having a mental health crisis, but who, as a result of that mental health crisis, may be falling into criminal activity to fuel a drug habit or something of that nature. From the time they are released from jail because they were put there as a result of a criminal uh, activity to fuel a drug habit, but their underlying issue is mental health, there's not a service to drive that person from jail to their mental health counselor to be able to receive care. And so guess what? That person is now wandering the streets. They never show up. That, that's very real. That does happen. And when they're out on the street, they then become the responsibility of law enforcement. Well, sure, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's very easy to call 911. There is no service for no easy three-digit number here. Uh, there is in Atlanta, and they have an amazing pilot program out there with regards to homelessness and mental health. But there is no easy three-digit number to call anywhere else for just a service like that. Over time, like you said, law enforcement has become the default responder to things like that. And we are now having to get creative. I, I don't necessarily like the term reimagine. It's more about thinking beyond the scope of what we have been doing versus what could be done together. You mentioned changes in law in Illinois and New York. Yeah, those are two, uh, two states that I am aware of that have had legislation that has been passed for specifically around police reform. But do they define what police reform is or just that they have to reform? Yeah, there's in the legislation, I don't have the details, but there are guidelines that, you know, the agencies will now need or laws now that the agencies will need to follow and they have to adapt to very quickly. I know in Colorado last year, they ushered through a bill very quickly that really cut qualified immunity for officers. If you could just touch on what qualified immunity is. I know this is an issue in other markets as well. I will use the legal definition. It's a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable, reasonable person would have known. So they were trying to remove qualified immunity from police officers. Yes, and they were largely successful out in Colorado last year. 
And that would mean they could be sued civilly. Correct. Up to a certain dollar amount. One of the bills that also came out was requiring body cams for officers. And I believe they just extended the deadline for that because body cams are expensive. And you can require them, but then you have to think about funding. So that's another, everything sounds good in theory. And it's really about when you put it into practice, what plays into that, what all goes into making sure that that happens, not just having the onus on law enforcement, but having the ability to create a very holistic program so that when you do have to hit the deadline of everything's good to go, you're not rushing, you're not going, oh my God, we're not going to be in compliance because we couldn't get the funding or we, we, you know, there's a lot of budgets that may not be able to achieve these expectations that are being set. And so those are other things that need to be taken into consideration. And PIOs are also being impacted by the changes, not necessarily because it, it impacts their job function, but they have to message these changes to the community, what can and can't be done now by law enforcement personnel. And, you know, there are going to be a lot of questions, a lot of community members wanting to know why. Maybe it sounded good on the surface, but now they're being impacted. And so being able to have intelligent, thorough conversations with people as the PIO, as well as, you know, the chief and command and, and everybody else who's out on the street, everybody has to have a very solid knowledge of, of that legislation. And so being able to help create messaging that is detailed, but also is messaged in a way that people can understand helping PIOs do that in the network that we have with IACP is important. You're right. I think the community really needs to understand how these things are going to change police and law enforcement and the police, their ability to respond Case in point, in recent research I was doing, I saw an incident within the Auburn, Washington Police Department. They issued a press release about it, followed by a social media video. It was about why, due to new laws around probable cause in Washington state, the police were unable to pursue or arrest a person driving a stolen vehicle, which belonged to a woman who was robbed at gunpoint. It's more than I can summarize here, so I will post the link to the video and the press release in the description of this episode, but it is a direct example of what you're talking about. Police departments having to go on social media and explain why they could or could not do something in a particular situation because of new laws. It, it's a learning curve for everyone, right? It's, it's different in every community. It's certainly different in every state. Communities have questions, they're going to want answers. And that's what my job basically entails is being there for them. We have to be consistent and we have to be persistent on those channels because if we're not, we're basically going to hand over the keys and give somebody else license to tell the story for us. And who knows the story better than the people who are in it every day. Your point about body cams, I think if you ask your average person, they think that every department in the country has body cam. But they don't. Correct. And it's, a, it's expensive. And it's not just the cost of purchasing them. It's maintaining them and getting the footage off of them. I do want to review this positive program you're launching through the IACP PIO section. It's called hashtag path forward. I'm looking at your materials and it's using social media to tell all of our story. As you describe it here, it is a digital first initiative to help law enforcement better tell the story of all that policing is and the good work agencies do every day. So tell me a little bit more about 
hashtag path forward. As I mentioned earlier a little bit, there's a lot of conversation around how do we give a greater scope of understanding with regards to what goes into policing. It's not just these these moments that, that make the news, it's, it's the everyday. How are law enforcement agencies adapting and adopting practices to be better in communities? What do partnerships and relationships look like? Agencies from all over the country are utilizing the hashtag simply that to help better tell the story. It's giving people access to ideas of how you can achieve that where you are. And can you give me an example? Chief Doug Shoemaker out in Grand Junction, he, he shared a very brief story about an officer who waited in line to get something signed for a child in, in their community at the Junior College World Series. Something that we, of course, in law enforcement, we're like, we, we know tons of stories like that. But that started a relationship between the family and the officer because she dedicated time to do that. That's what we're looking for are those moments that speak to not just who the officer is, but what the agency stands for. And so that, you know, that really begins to tell an even greater story about the profession. And so that's really what the Path Forward campaign is. I'm looking at the Twitter feed. I see a lot of departments that are participating. It's great stuff. I mean, you've got chiefs here who are doing this. They better be. I asked them to. DeKalb County in Georgia, they've done a great job. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, they have really leaned into talking about what programming looks like, how these conversations are important. Aurora Police Department in Colorado, they have also done an excellent job. Same with Indianapolis PD. All of these agencies, small, medium, and large, have really invested a concerted effort and amount of time helping people to see beyond what is just being talked about in a trending news capacity on Twitter. But it is a very real look at beyond the headline. These flash-in-the-pan moments aren't just critical incidents. They're potentially simple interactions at a coffee shop. And then, of course, it also is about the good old-fashioned crime fighting. Dallas PD has this weeding and seeding. So weeding out the bad and planting in the good. Their chief down there, Eddie Garcia, he's a phenomenal storyteller with regards to that. This is the very, very real portrayal of law enforcement. It's a very, very real job. The stuff that you see um, sits with you for forever. The, you know, the children in need, the people who have been hurt, the people who, you know, took their last breaths in your arms. There are very few other professions that have to deal with that. I was it, This last year in particular has not been easy. And there's been a lot of conversation about how our agency is different. And that is the, the real magic of a lot of law enforcement agencies is they aren't just talking about being different, they are doing things differently. And that is what is going to be what we look at as best practices, where we look to for you know those beacons of the profession. I would venture to say that a vast majority of agencies are going to be beacons. Well, I can't imagine a better place to end. Katie, thank you so much for your time and for joining me today. Of course, thank you for having me. Um, I'm hoping that hashtag path forward, I hope that path forward is, as you say, bright. It's a beacon and things are going to get better. So log on to Twitter, type in hashtag path forward and take a look at all the good stories that agencies are posting. If you're a law enforcement agency, 
post your story. If you're a civilian who's got a story about how law enforcement has helped you, post your story. You can find the hashtag in the write-up of this episode. Thanks for joining me today. Don't forget you can reach me at my email, abby at ellsworthproductions.com. I'll see you next time.